Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Joe Simhart, who has been a cult intervention specialist and expert, a recipient of the Cultic Studies Association Lifetime Achievement Award, a writer, and is currently employed in Psychiatric Emergency Hospital in Pennsylvania. He has a degree in art, and he has probably a very crooked path getting him from art to intervention specialist, uh, focusing predominantly on cult behavior. So welcome to the show, Joe. Appreciate you coming. Yeah. Yeah, hi, thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So let's start with just a broad definition of what is a cult? Yeah, that's a pejorative term, according to many people. It's, uh, you know, simply put, it's somebody else's religion. But basically, in my world uh, that analyzes uh, harmful group behavior and undue influence, it's specifically a self-sealing social system that causes harm to the individuals in the group. It causes psychological closure among uh, group members. They tend to get unreasonable and... Uh, create an us and them reality that becomes uh, kind of hyper dualistic. So uh, yeah, it's a little complicated, but yeah, what we're talking about are these self-sealing social systems that cause harm. Self-sealing social systems that cause harm. That's a really good description. It also needs to cause harm, right? Because there are self-sealing social systems that may not be causing harm. Is that correct or no? Right. Every, every group has to be taken uh, at its, um, as, as an individual entity. The, the word cult doesn't really tell me much of anything. You know, when some people call me and say, I think my husband's in a cult, I go, you know, well, my first thought is, you might as well be telling me they're in a car. You know, I don't know where it's going. I don't know who's driving. I don't know what shape it's in. I don't know what the map is that it's following. You know, I got to ask a thousand questions to figure out what kind of car this is and, and who's running it. Mm-hmm. So when you think of a typical case, and I know that cars are not all created equal, what are the kind of calls that you do get? Can you give us a little bit of a case where you have been called in and what you actually what strategy you employed and how it turned out yeah i've done over 500 of these interventions over the years but so this is a social problem it's a relational problem and so the the a relationship is somehow being harmed or damaged or uh um you know in some way uh one person's becoming estranged due to influence and uh so a spouse or an adult child or you know, uh, sometimes a friend will call me and, and be concerned about the behavior of a person that's become aligned with uh, something online or some new guru from India or maybe some old religion that has a, a, a different kind of leader with a very special insight into reality and is separating the flock from the mainstream. So 
uh, I have to figure out one, is this a, a relational problem uh, outside of the cult influence? In other words, if they had marriage problems ahead of time. So there's a lot of intake work before I will agree to help with an intervention. And uh, so smart. Mm-hmm. So smart because it, to fly in or swoop in without having any understanding of the pre-events does not make sense to me. Yeah. Right. And and there has to be a, uh, and there, there have been cases I've taken where I didn't know much about the group because it was new and no one really has studied it. Um, there, there were hundreds of them that were under the radar. They weren't in the news that I've dealt with. Uh, but you asked about a typical case. Um, so many come to mind, but one of my early cases was in Australia. And one of the wealthier men in Australia, he owned a mineral rights business. And uh, he flew me down because his wife had gotten involved with the cult that I was involved with, the Church Universal and Triumphant, also called Summit Lighthouse. And and I had left that group in 1980 um, and then began to study this problem of of cults. And and through my experience in that group, I learned an enormous amount about uh, cult behavior because uh, that particular group represented uh, you know, theosophy, fundamentalist Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and politics. And so it was a wide ranging group that allowed me to take a deep dive into that kind of behavior. But so I flew down to Australia knowing quite a bit about the group because I had left it and already exited people from it. Uh, What I didn't know when I arrived and, and the wife had agreed to to meet with me. Um, She was quite angry, but she agreed. And so she and I and her husband spent three, four days together. And I found out that the way she got into this Church Universal and Triumphant was by studying Edgar Cayce and believing that Edgar Cayce was a real psychic and that he had real predictions and helped to cure people through trance uh, readings or whatever. I knew quite a bit about Cayce. Mm-hmm. So we went over Edgar Casey first, and I was able to deconstruct what that was about and the fact that he wasn't really psychic. You could explain a lot of his so-called mystical readings, and, uh, and a lot of times he was wrong. And so that led me into an easier path of deconstructing and uh, uh, expanding on what this group was about that she was in uh, involved in, the Church Universal Triumphant. The extraordinary thing about that situation was that the group leader was personally trying to recruit her. So she felt really special. Um, Of course, there were many millions of dollars at stake here. So you could see why the leader was taking a personal interest in this woman. But it it worked out fine. She uh, defected from the group after about three and a half days of talking. And uh, um, I flew home. That sounds like a very successful intervention. So... Is defecting from one of these groups simple or not? I would have imagined that it's a more complicated, more than just, I decide to leave. What happens when somebody does decide to leave? In most cases, people that have become committed to these uh, self-sealing groups uh, or cults, um, they become ambivalent. Uh, about the group because there's a lot of problems within these groups. The leaders tend to be, you know, uh, narcissistic, uh, entitled, 
and that begins to wear on some followers. Uh, they often, uh, and I've heard this very often, is they decide to leave the group after being involved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, years before they actually step outside of it. It's not easy right. to just walk away. Uh, there's a lots of investment. There's emotional investment. There's intellectual investment. There's money sometimes. Uh, sometimes so much of the self is invested that people don't know what to do if they left the group. Uh, they don't have a job. They, they've cut off family support by that point. Um, they have to rely on maybe on ex-members. They contact the next member and uh, that ex-member might help them to make the exit. You know, I know in my case, when I started, and I wasn't in that deep, but psychologically I, I was, um, I began wanting to, to leave the group or saying, you know, this isn't for me, but I wasn't clear on why. And I actually was having panic attacks, waking in the middle of the night with stomach cramps uh, for about a month uh, until that cleared up through, through other means. But um, yeah, it isn't easy. And uh, there's always this threat that you'll go to hell if you leave the group, or in some cases, the group will come after you because you have too much information about the group. You know, you talk about a business called like the mafia, for instance, when you sneak away from there, you better hide your identity, at least in the old days. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you just don't walk away from something like this. It's a psychological trap and it takes a lot of mental and emotional work to decide to leave. Tell me, what are the antecedent sort of events that generally would make somebody more receptive to an organization that is self-sealing like that? Yeah, there's such a variety of things. Uh, you know, somebody might be interested in mindfulness. They've read about it. They've read a book by some, you know, uh, Tibetan monk and uh, decide to go to a workshop. And it happens to be the kind of workshop which has ulterior motives, meaning they want to recruit people. And, uh, and they give a very uh, impressive first introduction. There's people there that are really into it. And and there's a kind of a what used to be called love bombing. People were happy you mm -hmm. came. They want to know about your life. They're very interested in you. And uh, they say, you know, my life's been so much better since I began this particular kind of meditation with guru so-and-so um, last year. Um, you know, could you come to our next meeting? And, you know, and suddenly a person might feel that they've stepped into something that's like a calling uh, that might be a divine intervention in their life to help them overcome anxiety, uh, uh, insecurity about their identity or whatever. You know, and then the first step is very delightful, friendly. And uh, after that, it's a matter of an adaptation to whatever the group wants uh, you to believe and how, how you should behave. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that on a neurological level, they're working from taking the people who are receptive from their cortex area into that survival zone. You need us. You, you need us for relationship. You need us for identity. You mm -hmm. need us. It must come with that kind of transition mentally. Yeah. Now, some groups are more prone to appeal to the emotions, um, praising God, for instance, or or having uh, ecstatic experiences after an ayahuasca experience in the Amazon jungle, and, and you end up in a weird cult, you know, with some guru that uses that as a sacrament. Uh, but in, in, mm -hmm. in general, uh, 
people do use what's called system one, uh, system two thinking in, in um, dual process theory, meaning the prefrontal cortex, but it gets hijacked. So you use a lot of rational uh, uh, understanding and reading, um, you know, putting together ideas. But the, the basic assumption behind what all of that rationality is, is, is doing in your, in your mind is bogus. You know, for instance, uh, in my case with this Church Universal and Triumphant, the basic assumption was that the leader, Elizabeth Prophet, was able to be a messenger or a, 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 an amanuensis or a psychic that could have these saints and angels and ascended masters speak through her, what they call channeling. And if you bought into that basic assumption to any to any degree, well, you're done. You know, your uh, rational powers uh, will arrange reality around that basic assumption and begin to defend the fact that she really is in tune with ascended masters. And these people are uh, in some etheric place which are guiding humanity and uh, I better take them seriously. You know, so... It's, it's a little bit complicated. Um, you know, the, the rational mind can be hijacked and often is by these mm -hmm. basic assumptions that the group offers you. That makes sense to me. How does money play into this, either in attracting people who participate or in maintaining a connection in those systems? Money is, is a symbol of power you know, basically, uh, for these groups, uh, you know, for instance, uh, they don't always spend it. Well, uh, Jim Jones with the people's temple had something like $26 million stashed away, you know, when that group went under in the mass suicide, why would he have it just stashed away? Uh, well, it's a symbol of power and, uh, who knows what other reason he had in his mind. Uh, there are some groups out there, like a couple of nomadic Christian groups that I've known uh, and followed for decades. They had no money. Uh, they lived out of dumpsters. Um, they maybe carried 5 or $10 in their pocket just to be not accused of vagrancy if they were uh, caught camping somewhere outside of a town. And uh, the leaders didn't seem to hoard any money either. You know, so... The, the opposite, meaning um, eschewing or, or rejecting money, is a powerful thought in that particular case. In other cases, you know, and I'm going to name the, the, the group uh, uh, Scientology that founded by L. Ron Hubbard, he was very much into money. And so he mm -hmm. charged high prices for uh, kind of uh, spiritual therapy courses that uh, uh, basic assumption was that you were going to become an operating Satan or a living God, uh, in, in other words, if you followed all these courses and that was going to be expensive. Um, you know, so it, it can go from almost no money in a call to everything is about the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we use, what tools do we use to get somebody to look at where they are and move beyond if they aren't quite ready? Do you use financial leverage as one of those tools? Do you cut people off? How do you influence the connection that has been severed already? That's a tough one. Um, my Usually when people call me, it's at the 11th hour and, and these connections have been severed. A person won't talk mm -hmm. to them or 
refuses to discuss the group. Um, so my, my first role in, in, in relation with my client is to get them to reestablish that connection somehow, either through a third party, um, apologize, you know, whatever they have to do, even if it's hypocritical, in order to get some kind of communication, because I'm, I can't do much of anything without that communication. Um, you know, for instance, I never meet with a, a quote, cult member unless there's someone of, with the, of the family or, or a friend or with me. I, I don't meet with them alone during interventions. So there has to be some connection for me to get involved. Um, as far as influencing them to leave the group, uh, it's very difficult. The best thing to do is to learn to ask proper questions, you know, like, how are you doing? Um, you know, do you need anything from us? Uh, now, you know, maybe the problem is money and uh, there's a huge inheritance. And I've had this happen many times where someone's due to inherit $5 million or $10 million and the family puts that money in a trust and won't let the person get to touch it until they leave the cult. You know, that's, that's the whole uh, arrangement because they know from experience that money's going to go right to the group leader if, if the person gets it. So uh, that's a tough one. And uh, sometimes the family has to manage that relationship for 5, 10. I've had clients calling me now for 20 years, having that relationship severed, um, trying to protect the money from going into the group and you know being willing to give it to the member if they break away from the group. Uh, it's not easy. Um, we have used it for leverage to, to uh, uh, bring people into intervention. I remember using a, that tactic with a family uh, of a young man who was in Colorado under the uh, control of a sorcerer, a self-made sorcerer who used tarot cards in order to influence people with his readings. And anyway, he, he was abusive. And we, we got the the young man to come home by getting a message to him that his, his aunt, who was somewhat wealthy and he knew that, was going to distribute $10,000 to every one of her, you know, relatives uh, before she died. And that, but he would have to come home to sign papers in order to get it. Well, we knew that this leader, he wasn't that well off. And when he heard $10,000 that he might be able to get it, he sent him home. And, uh, Surprisingly, I showed up with a partner of mine to talk to him and he agreed to the conversation and uh, we got him to break away from that abusive tarot card reader um, and he never went back. So you were part of what we're calling a cult. You left a cult. How long were you participating in the life of the church? Yeah, it, it wasn't just one group. Um, the, the particular group was Church Universal and Triumphant at the time. I went to three conferences over a period of a year and a half. So my deep involvement was about a year and a half in California. And there were about three to 4,000 people would show up at these conferences. The group combined uh, the teachings of the Theosophical Society, the Agni Yoga Society, Fundamentalist Christianity, and a few other things that I don't need to mention here. But um, my interest in that whole thing was through the Agni Yoga Society, which I began studying uh, the teachings of in 1975. And I found out that this group represented those teachings as their highest teachings. And, you know, friends of mine that were in it, uh, it convinced me to come to a conference and I got caught up in the in that group. 
you know, Agni Yoga, I was involved in studying that, even though I wasn't in the, quote, cult, for about seven years. And I dropped that in 1981, about a year after I dropped out of uh, Church Universal and Triumphant. Now, Agni Yoga, you know, one of uh, his famous followers of Nicholas Rorge, the founder, was Henry Wallace, Secretary of Agriculture under uh, President Roosevelt. Uh, also, uh, Mikhail and uh, Riza Gorbachev were promoters of Agni Yoga in Russia. There's three million members of Agni Yoga in Russia today, according to the last count that I saw. Now, the listeners here probably never heard of this group. Uh, Agni I've never heard book. of it. Can you describe a little bit for me what it is? Sure. It's, it's very interesting. It's A-G-N-I, Agni, the God of Fire or psychic energy or wisdom in India. It's one of the mo more ancient gods. Um, and, um, and yoga means yoking with this divine wisdom is basically what it was. So there wasn't any hatha yoga or, or body postures going on in this group. This was all a, a kind of an intellectual, mystical approach. You read the books, these channelings of Helena Rorich. Uh, she was a theosophist who had translated Madame Blavatsky's secret doctrine into Russian back uh, in early part of the uh, uh, 20th century. So you read the books, you went to meetings, uh, and you basically just kind of attended to this gathering of psychic energy and divine wisdom as to be a member of the group. Um, there was an inner core of some very wealthy people that supported the Rorics when they came to the United States in 1920. Um, there's a... Um, 29-story building at 103rd and Riverside that was dedicated to the Master Institute that was uh, headed, the guru was uh, Nicholas Rorick. You can still visit that building. I've been in it. Uh, it no, it's, it's an apartment building now, an exclusive one. Uh, there's a little segment in there in the first floor that shows its history, and you see a little bit about this uh, Agni Yoga reference to it. Um, you know, so that's just one group. Um, of, of so many others that are pretty interesting and colorful. But uh, yeah, so I was involved with that for about seven years till I finally figured out that the whole thing was a sham. In fact, I rejected all of theosophy, which was like the mother of the kind of groups I was involved in. And uh, I had to deconstruct all of that too. You know, so this was a deep dive for me into recovery. And because of that deep dive, I became quote, expert, unquote, in that kind of group and, and a lot of other groups that were related to it, people began to ask me to help them with interventions, people that were called deprogrammers and exit counselors that uh, had cases related to that kind of group. And that's how I got into this field of intervention in 1985. And you've done, you said, 500 Somewhere in that That's region. just a round Probably. number, but... Round number, you I've don't follow. keep a check mark or a hash mark <laughs> on your wall, right? No, I, you know, I've helped well over a thousand people in different ways, through internet, through telephone, through personal meeting that wasn't done through intervention. Um, you know, I had a case uh, out of uh, South America, a, a woman, a middle-aged woman contacted me by email. Her husband was involved with a mystical group down there that I knew quite a bit about, and... Uh, I was able to exit counsel him through her by telling her what to tell him through email. So the whole exit counseling went over a period of a month, me interacting with her, her interacting with him, she giving me feedback. This is what he's saying now. I say, well, then ask him this. And uh, lo and behold, he sends me an email after about six weeks and saying, I heard you were 
helping my wife help me get out of this group. I want to thank you. Now, wow. uh, you know, it saved the marriage. Uh, I wasn't paid a cent for it. I was just doing it on the fly. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's incidents like that that happen in this field, which uh, is kind of gratifying. And it's not about the money. It's about really about, um, you, know. you know, getting people to decide again uh, if they've made a bad decision and, uh, you know, help them mend a relationship. So it sounds to me as you're describing the process, it really is all about reinstituting a sense of choice, right? Yes. The choice that they have felt like they had already given away. Yeah, you have to become a good heretic. You know, a heretic is someone who chooses. Chooses, yeah. Yeah. So when you're not successful, because you've helped a thousand people, there's probably one person out there who hasn't been receptive to the message or the connection, what does that leave you with? How does that teach you in those moments when you haven't been successful? Well, you know, of formal interventions where I've spent more than a day with a, a family system and someone in a cult, about 40% of them did not work. Mm -hmm. Some of them uh, ended within an hour of me meeting the person, they walked away and went back to the group. And, uh, or, or in one case, uh, 17 group members came to the place of intervention and took the person back to the group, you know? So it gets a little hairy sometimes. Uh, you know, I've had uh, the group send police to the place where we're working and claiming that I kidnapped them and whatever. Um, it's heartbreaking. I have to do some, uh, you know, post intervention counseling with the family to see what else we can do. Um, sometimes there's second chances for intervention, uh, but basically you want to try to mend the fences as best you can. Uh, obviously the person is very angry that you even brought up the idea of intervention. Um, you know, it can happen with any kind of intervention, like with drug and alcohol, uh, sure. a person can walk out of the intervention and, and leave and not see the family again for months or whatever, because, uh, They'd rather be with their drug of choice than with the family. Mm -hmm. And that would be true for these kinds of cult situations as well, I would imagine. There are periods mm -hmm. when the allure of the group is so powerful that nothing is going to intervene in those moments. I would imagine that. Yeah, no, there are. There are cases where I've known people that um, the family had been concerned about them being in, and this is you know, older families I've known. And the person, you know, ended their life believing in the group. Uh, and I don't mean suicide, I just mean they passed away at age 70 or 80 or 85 and uh, uh, totally believing in, in something which, you know, th their children found bogus because they grew up in the group and left it at age 18 or 20 and they couldn't get their parents out of it. Right, right. So we have just spent a half an hour talking about cults. What didn't I ask you? What would you like to leave our audience with today? Well, if, if you're interested in this topic and want to educate yourself about what, what this is, um, neurologically, I'd recommend one book, uh, Brainwashing the Science of Thought Control by Kathleen Taylor. Um, it came out in 2006, I believe. You know, it gives you an idea how the brain works and what happens when uh, thought-stopping techniques begin to bypass the prefrontal cortex, you know, and and you end up thinking in uh, thought-terminating cliches rather than reason. Um, 
and that does a good explanation of that. There's another book called How to Think About Weird Things by Schick and Vaughn. Excellent uh, Great look title. at why, you know, how, how we can fool ourselves into thinking that someone is psychic or that someone has read our mind, you know, or that, that we see patterns where there aren't any. Um, you know, the, the brain is set up to trick us in many different ways through evolution because we need it to to make instinctual choices. Uh, we need to see patterns very quickly. Um, and I'm talking about we 60,000 years ago and 2 million years ago, you know, our mm -hmm. modern mind is, is still infused with these old evolutionary patterns that, that can fool us in many different ways and can help us. We just have to learn to discern what's helping and what's not. And uh, the advice in Kathleen Taylor's book is stop and think. And she has a whole chapter on what that means, how that affects the, 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 the brain, the synapses, and what she calls neuronets that, that come together in the brain hmm. to form ideas and guiding principles. Um, you know, these neuronets can be solidified when we're in a group and they're very difficult to break down. And so you can understand why the process of exit counseling is an educational process, very careful, wide ranging, to kind of loosen up these bound up neuronets in the brain in order for the person to be able to think, quote, outside the box. And, um, and that takes a lot of patient uh, dialogue and give and take um, rapport with a person before they're gonna start seeing things differently. Um, what's interesting in many cases, uh, after about the second, third day, you think there's a lot of resistance, you don't see any progress, they're not necessarily wanting to leave the group, but then something shifts very quickly. And we used to call it snapping, where you see the person suddenly start talking about the group in the past tense, and they don't realize they're doing it. You know, they start saying things like, well, when I meditated in the group, um, I can see how that affected me according to what you're telling me about hypnosis right now. You know, so there's talking in the past tense, in the dialogue with with me and i can see that well we're on our way out now let's just keep going that's great advice to know thank you very much for joining me today this has been an episode of beyond the balance sheet podcast if you have listened and enjoyed this episode and are curious please like us on your platform of choice and listen to the other episodes thank you thank you for listening to beyond the balance sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.